Hi, this is Amanda Marr, and you're listening to Life Giver. Welcome to Life Giver Military Spouse Podcast, a place for honest conversation and hope that will breathe life into your military marriage and home. This is Corey Weathers, and I'm so excited to share in this journey with you. This is Rebecca Dre. I just wanted to shout out today to encourage you to buy and read Corey Weathers' book, Sacred Spaces. For couples who have experienced deployment, you'll likely find yourself nodding along, revisiting and identifying the many emotions that you have shared and lived through. Sacred Spaces challenges married couples to create new intentions and change in our marriages. I have already seen firsthand the fruit of the intentional marriage challenge, breathing new life into marriages as we actively and with new purpose pursue our spouse's heart. Thank you, Corey, so much for your book. God bless. Hi, everyone. I'm on a mission to see our military and first responder couples take back lost territory in their marriages. War, trauma, separations, and even simple misunderstandings can take a toll on a relationship, leaving you feeling disconnected and discouraged. I believe that healthy marriages that experience joy require hard work and intentionality. So that's what my mission is for the next year. The Sacred Spaces campaign is simply inviting you to be intentional in your marriage. It's that simple. Here are three steps to joining the campaign. Number one, consider buying the book Sacred Spaces. You don't have to, but it is impacting marriages in ways I never dreamed. It is my story of how being intentional changed my heart towards my spouse. Number two, sign up for the Sacred Spaces campaign. You can do this by going to my website, www.coryweathers.com, under the Sacred Spaces page. You will get a free Sacred Spaces Intentional Marriage Challenge commitment card that will help you decide how to be intentional, as well as help you nail down how long you want to take the challenge. Number three, help me spread the word. One of the reasons Sacred Spaces is so successful is that people are telling their stories. One by one, marriages are changing because at least one person in the relationship is taking a step forward towards loving their spouse better than the day before. Will you join me? Join the Sacred Spaces campaign today. Welcome to another episode of Life Giver Military Spouse Podcast. We are in the middle of the Sacred Spaces series where we are addressing topics from the Sacred Spaces book that came out early in August, as well as having key interviews with those that were mentioned in the book. Today is a very special episode. I'm going to be interviewing Amanda Marr. Those of you who have read the book remember Amanda Marr as the gold star widow that I had the honor of serving back in 2009. This is definitely a sacred space for me. This discussion is definitely a sacred space for her, and I'm so honored that she would um, come on the podcast and have a wonderful discussion about what it was like for her to become a Gold Star Widow and what it was like for her to overcome some of the difficulties since then. This is an inspiring interview that I think anybody can get something out of, whether it's addressing grief or crisis in your life or whether it's about how can you make your marriage great, especially now that Amanda Marr is talking about what it's like to be a military spouse remarried again. So let's get right into the interview with Amanda Marr. All right. So with me today is Amanda Marr. Um, those of you who have read the Sacred Spaces book um, hear her name throughout the story as a beautiful friend of mine that I met under some very difficult circumstances um, back in 2009 on October 4th when I was part of the care team and had to visit Amanda Marr um, and talk with her about um, having just lost her soldier. And I know that this is a difficult topic for Amanda to talk about. It's a difficult topic for me to share with the world because for Amanda and I, this is a sacred space memory and it's a very important part of our lives and our story. So it's a tough discussion. Um, but I invited Amanda to be part of the discussion today because um, it gives Amanda the opportunity to share with, with everybody how her life is different now and how she's a different person because of the sacred space in her life and maybe some of the ways that it's made her stronger. 
Um, and I believe that her story resonates with a lot of you out there for different reasons, and it hits you on different levels. Some of you may have lost a soldier yourself. Um, some of you um, are afraid of going through an experience like that. Some of you want to work with Gold Star families, and Amanda Marr is not only a Gold Star wife, but she's also remarried and a military spouse today. And so, Amanda, thank you so much for having the courage and the vulnerability to have this conversation with me today. I really, really do appreciate it, and I love you so much. <laughs> thank you, Corey. I'm, I'm honored to be able to be a part of this. Um, there are a few situations that allow um, for a tragic experience to then transcend to help with really anything and with others in general. So I think that this is great. I appreciate the, uh, the invite. October 4th, 2009, we were part of a squadron 361 CAV that was part of the fourth division that was out in Afghanistan. And that's a particularly difficult day for a lot of people. Um, not just, uh, 361, but a lot of different branches that participated in helping get a lot. There was 52 of our guys that were at cop Keating in a remote place in Afghanistan, um, and they were overrun by close to 400 Taliban or insurgents. And um, your ex-husband, Justin Gallegos, was one of those who didn't make it. And um, you guys had a very special relationship and that there was a connection with you guys that was very mm -hmm. strong. And so the notification still needed to come to you on that day. Mm -hmm. And um, that's how we met. In fact, the yes. notification happened and then Part of it, I was my role as the care team coordinator was to kind of follow what we call the green suits that do the notification mm -hmm. and check in with you and make sure there's that number one, you're not alone, but number two, if there's anything that we can do um, as a care team to support you during those, especially the first couple weeks. So, Amanda, um, let's talk a little bit from the beginning. Let's kind of go back if you're comfortable with it and just talk a little bit about that day and we won't sit there for too long because it's a very special moment for both of us it's a very tragic moment also and i definitely don't want to sound like a voyeur in your life and i don't want to give other people the opportunity yeah. to be a voyeur in your life but okay. maybe just share a little bit about as you look back on that day you know we talk about sacred spaces being significant moments in our lives that are usually experienced in a very multi-sensory way that mark us in a way that mm -hmm. it takes up a lot of space in our story if we were to mm -hmm. share our narrative or our story. And so yeah. when you look back on that time in 2009, what comes up and, and maybe just describe very, very little what that day mm -hmm. was like for you? Um, well, it, it's like a, an abstract, painful painting, if I look back on it, where... Um, I know that it's there. I know that I experienced it, but there are bits and pieces that I remember very clearly, some good, some bad. You know, it's not like all the bad stuff I remember and the good stuff's a blur. It's kind of hit and miss what I do remember. And then, um, and then I remember some of the stuff that I, yeah, ultimately I just, I remember it being sort of a blur with some moments of lucidity here and there. And I remember the notification occurring and then kind of after between that and about three days later is again in that kind of abstract um, time frame you said that it was kind of hit and miss and and no one i think everybody who's ever experienced a, diff, a traumatic moment a car wreck um being notified of of the death of somebody close to you you often kind of zone out and things mm -hmm. go tunnel vision and it's hard to remember you know details yeah. Do you happen to remember them knocking on your door and what they said to you yeah. that day? I do. Let's see. Since I was active duty um, at the time, I had been promoted the day prior. And so I had gone out the night before and with a girlfriend from my unit. And so she had stayed over at the house because we had had we shared a babysitter with the kids. Anyway, so the next morning I wake up and, you know, living life as normal. I wake up in the morning and I happen to look out my window of my upstairs bedroom and there was a car parked in the driveway and instead of having any cause for alarm of any kind I thought who thinks they can park in my driveway <laughs> so I come stomping down the stairs thinking like oh well th this just can't happen how dare they and if I remember correctly I swung the door open before they were able to knock or ring the doorbell which I which really caught them off guard and I remember realizing what was happening before they were talking. Mm -hmm. Like I, it just, it was, there was just no other reason 
for there to be a uniformed service member standing at my door at eight some o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. I think was it? I believe it was a Saturday. Um, but anyway, so there was just no reason for them to be there. And I remember asking for uh, time for them to come back another time mm. because I the kids were there. Uh, my friend was there. The kids were there. And my house, the way it was set up, it was a pretty large open space. And I knew they'd be able to hear um, what was going on. So and there do, wasn't... do you remember, did you ask them to go away and come back? I did. Um, and they said they couldn't. They were persistent that, that this, you know, this had to happen then. And again, the whole time, I, mean, I, I knew what they were trying to say. Um, I know that they were looking for Mrs. Gallegos. And that was kind of, that threw them off, I think, more than me because I never had never changed my last name to Gallegos. So I was immediately like, oh, well, that's not me. <laughs> and so I could tell just really just the whole interaction really threw them off because um, I didn't want them to be there and wanted them to come back. And I wasn't by the last name that they had on file, which was really Justin's fault. Justin had uh, filled out paperwork with me as Amanda Gallegos as more of a slight on that I didn't change my last name because mm-hmm. um, it was kind of always a, a, a point of contention to um, my <laughs> very masculine Hispanic husband that I chose to keep my maiden name. <laughs> but anyway, um, so yeah, so when they asked for Mrs. Gallegos, that really threw them off. And then I had asked them to come back and they said that they couldn't. And I think I want to say they slipped up and said something like, oh, that there were others, like yeah. that they had to they had to meet with others. They were going to have other people to talk to or something along those lines. And, and that was my first moment. It was kind of like my in to, to try to then probe a lot more information or attempt to out of these guys. And those that have, have read the book know that, or read the outpost by Jake Tapper and now read platoon by Clint Romache know that there was eight that um, lost their lives that day and, and I referenced that in my book as well, as far as when I, we, you and I first met, I remember mm-hmm. that was one of the first things you said is, is that you were needing to know as anybody would want to know what's, mm-hmm. there's more information, there's more that's going on. Yeah. You know, I had been trained to yeah. you know, don't give out any other information. And, you know, I realized in that moment how cold that felt to yeah. Yeah. not be able to give you more information. And I, I think you and I did have a conversation where I said, you know, yes, there are others. And, mm-hmm. and this is and let me just say as a reference, as a side note here, that this is a really good reminder for those that are listening that you talk to your soldier and make sure that the information on your DD-93 is correct. Because there yeah. were others that day that we had a very difficult time finding yeah. because addresses yeah. were wrong, names are wrong. And so thankfully we were able to find you quickly Um, and you also are active duty. And so you kind of were very aware of the protocol and how things happen. And ultimately I think I would, I would like for you to tell me what you think about this, but ultimately that I think helped you in the process is knowing the protocol of how things happen as an active duty soldier. Oh, it did profoundly because I knew, um, I knew that any moments that did seem cold I was well aware that there were processes for everything um, and regulations and SOPs for everything. And so even when the less army, more spouse slash mom part of it um, were to challenge that feeling like, oh, they don't even care. Oh, they, you know, they have more information. They, I want it to be shared. Then there certainly was a knowledge base for me that allowed me to see like, okay, th- this guy, it's not his responsibility. This is not, this is just one person in um, the bigger picture of this. And there's just no way that he can tell me this or that, or, you know, I, I, yeah, I just, I understood more about why certain things were being done that way. Um, and certainly, and it allowed me to free any blame away. Um, so it, it kept me from pointing any fingers of, you know, not, feeling like they were helping. So are you saying that because you knew the protocol and knew what they could and could not do, that it was, it made it easier so that you weren't blaming the person who was giving you the news? Is that what you mean? Yes, that is correct. Thank you for for helping me word that. Yes. It kept me from feeling any negative negativity in that experience other than the, the actual trauma involved, but 
it kept me from feeling like I was being slated in any way. So tell me a little bit about what the days that followed were like. I'm sure those are kind of like a blur as well. Yeah, but yeah. What really helped you move forward, you know, the next day and the next day? Yeah. What, what, where did you find the strength to push through all of that? Well, I will say the, the care team that you were a part of when we met, even though that resource was very much exhausted because of the amount of people at once um, getting hit, even an exhausted resource, just having some part of it still helped a lot. So when um, even just knowing that there was a person, that there was a you to call when I didn't know who else to call or didn't know um, what else to do in certain situations, um, that was hugely helpful. So um, and as you and I have talked before, I have always appreciated that that you were there for me in that time, um, as part of that care team. And, um, but the days following, um, let's see the second day after, um, the notification, I, uh, sort of came to one day and I was driving in uniform and like full on uniform hair done, but didn't remember leaving. So I was driving to work and I didn't know where my kids were. And I didn't know how I got there. And I didn't know, I had no idea what had happened. And so there I was driving to work in my military uniform and went, oh my gosh, I just had a psychological breakdown. I don't know where I am. I don't know what's going Mm -hmm. on. And so I drove to the hospital, which conveniently for me, that was where I worked. So that was already where I was on my way to. But I continued, yeah, I drove to the hospital. I walked into the ER and I said, my son's father has just been killed in Afghanistan and I really need your help. Like I I need Mm -hmm. you to help me. And they were like, Oh, go ahead and, you know, wait right there in the, um, waiting room. And I was like, no, no, I I need your help right now. Like right this moment, I need you to help me. And they did. So that was the first moment that I took it as seriously as it needed to be taken because I then realized I didn't even have control over my own mind and how it would behave in those moments because I had completely blacked out between the, I would say the evening prior to whenever it was that I ended up in uniform driving. Now my kids were safe. Everything was fine um, in that regard. Um, So even on autopilot, I still did all the things I was supposed to do, but that also included like pulling my hair tightly back in a bun in my uniform and not having any recollection of doing that. So that was a big shocker to to realize that that could even happen. And so then I did get help in part of medication. There was a period of time where I saw a psychiatrist and, and was prescribed medication so that I could find that uh, respite in medication for a bit as a short term, you know, just to get through certain moments. And so there was that. And, and then I, I didn't worry as much about hurting people's feelings as I would have before. Like there were times that, I might say things and just be okay with it, <laughs> just go with it with what I had said, whether it was being critical of someone or whether it was just disregarding someone's idea. I just kind of let that go of being worried about other people's feelings right then. And I also tried to keep from um, taking too much stock in other people's judgments. I bought disposable dishes. I bought packs of clean underwear so that I would not have to do as much laundry for the kids. I mean, I just, and I, and I owned it. I just was like, you know what? It's what it is. There's yeah. I'm, I just don't care what someone else might be looking on and thinking about, Oh, my, my lack of involvement in the PTA or something or other, you know, I just stopped caring as much about those things in that time. And I wanted the FRG to be more helpful, but unfortunately in that situation, I just don't think they were well enough trained mm-hmm. in that for that, for that moment to be there for that. Um, there were a couple of times I tried to lean on that resource and I just, I felt like they wanted very badly to be helpful and supportive, but it was, I think it was just too much for the, your kind of average person to be able to navigate without being hurtful or offensive. Um, it's just too sensitive at time. So a couple things have come to my mind. Number one, I'm absolutely amazed that 
and I think this is encouraging to me, is that even when you were at your lowest point, you still found a way to be an advocate for yourself. Like I loved the fact that you went into the hospital and you didn't let them make you wait. Like you said, no, yeah. this is what I need and I need it right now. Yeah. And that you didn't apologize for that. And I think that is incredible that the, the a human can do that under those situations. But also I think that that speaks a lot of what you were also saying about you, you stopped caring what other people thought and you were an advocate for yourself and yeah. being who you needed to be to get to a healthy place, but also who you needed to be as a mother to yeah. children to, to get to a healthy place. You know, as I look back and, and for those listening, I asked Amanda to be really honest about looking back about what could have been better, what we could have done different, um, because I think that we can always learn from, you know, our experiences. And so I welcome looking back on that and saying, you know, what could I as a care team coordinator have done different um, and what can FRGs do different? And looking back, Amanda, I, you know, I think back and I, I think one of the things that we weren't prepared for as a 361 group is you're right. I think that we weren't ready for something that big to happen. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I learned as the care team coordinator that I've tried to share with other um, units or brigades that are making, uh, developing their care teams is that you never underestimate what can happen if there's a mass casualty situation, how that can um, really take out your entire care team. Because, yeah. it, you know, even just one loss to your unit can impact everybody in a psychological, yeah. emotional way. And so I think what we saw happen for our care team and for the FRG is that everybody was paralyzed. Yeah. Everybody was afraid. Everybody was in grief. Everyone couldn't, we suddenly couldn't support each other because we mm -hmm. didn't know how to take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And um, I, as a care team coordinator, I remember reaching out to outside of our mm -hmm. squadron, to our brigade, reaching out to the division, reaching out to the entire Fort Carson for help, specifically mm -hmm. for you one evening because you called and you said, I just need help for like two hours while I get the, I don't know if you remember this, yeah. but just to get the children bathed and in bed. If I can yeah. get through that, then I think I'll be okay. But I just need somebody yeah. for two hours. Yeah. And I called everybody I could and everyone yeah. was paralyzed. Yeah. And everybody was unavailable because I don't know if they were afraid to leave their own children. I don't know if, if they just didn't have the capacity to do it, but we really struggled as a unit. And what that yeah. taught me as a care team coordinator is that every care team needs a backup care team. Yeah. yeah. That we need additional, that, you know, we always want to be very territorial, if I could say that word, and take care uh -huh. of our own. But that doesn't mean that in every situation we have what it takes to take yeah. care of our own. Yeah, to have like a sister unit um, that it was some sort of agreement that you have someone that you already have pre-existing agreements with that could step in and help in those times maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And that's, and I will say that fourth division, Patty George did a great job of initiating um, all of Fort Carson really to help us during that time. And we had mm -hmm. three freezers full of casseroles and the whole thing, you know, everybody ended up helping in different ways. Um, but we definitely learned a whole lot from mm -hmm. that experience. So is there anything else that you look back on and would you would encourage someone mm -hmm. else who's on a care team? What could they do? to help somebody else in a situation like that? Their own self-care and, and resilience, I think would be very important. Cause again, that's not the time that I was going to be able to uh, cater to someone else. Um, I just was, I was too wounded in that situation to then take care of anyone else. And um, so there, yeah. So for, for the person to be again, adequately trained because um, not a lot of a lot of these things are not, as you know, I mean they're they're not natural uh, born talents to be able to face that kind of grief or behavior and understand what to do. And so appropriate training in their own self care and resilience, I think, is important. And then um, and just to under just not to take a lot of stuff personally and just know that that person is in a lot of pain. Um, and or could be um and you know what if they're not they could be in a lot of denial and to and to maybe even understand what that looks like and just just overall training 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 <laughs> i'm sure there's a powerpoint for it somewhere oh i'm sure i'm sure <laughs> but, and if there isn't but, it's in development right now yeah yeah so no it's just basically just that 
that that training it's applicable um that that um yeah to and and that they're and that they in the same token can never be prepared enough for every situation they're going to come across um you know they they could end up with the the war-torn widow that's asking them to like take him to the bar you know you never know mm-hmm. i mean there's just weird stuff that goes on and, and weirder than i probably even know mm-hmm. <laughs> but um it, but for me it was just being present being uh, the other the other person would be present and healthy to themselves and and be tolerant and resilient i think those would be really important the cop cheating battle is now very publicly known. Um, we've had two Medal of Honors that came out of that battle. We've had the Outpost by Jake Tapper. We've had um, Clint Romache, who was one of those Medal of Honors, just came out with Red Platoon. And I know I joined you at the White House twice for those mm-hmm. Medal of Honor ceremonies. Um, you met with Obama at least once. Um, and I'm not sure if you did it I the think, second time. I think twice. Oh, I don't know, actually. No. How sad is that? I'm like, I don't know. I, I don't quite remember. <laughs> At least um, once. But yeah, so yeah. my question for you is, you know, a lot of sacred spaces that people have, um, service members who've had sacred spaces where um, during a deployment they've had a traumatic experience of their own, um, it's really easy to keep those sacred spaces, those important moments in our life, very private and guard them and not talk about them. And here a sacred space in your life has become very, very public and your story, um, or at least even your name is mentioned, you know, in at least these three books, if mm-hmm. not more. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what that's been like for your sacred space to be so public? So with the books and any mention of my name, I, for starters, I realized that I'm sort of a, a supporting role in all of this, that this is there. Everybody's kind of in it together. Mm-hmm. So it's not just, you know, a book about Amanda that, um, and then there were a whole bunch of other people. It's a book about a whole bunch, a whole bunch of really big, heavy concepts and humans and families and pain and joy and all kinds of stuff. And so because I'm such a small part in that bigger, um, puzzle, it takes a lot of the pressure off. Um, cause it's not just my story, it's everyone's story. And so there's that, um, and I'm, I'm happy that the story is told, whether it's the story from you talking about the sacred spaces and the relationships and the changes over time or the nitty gritty gunfire of the battlefield. I am appreciative that that story is being told to, to everyone. So there's that. Um, and then I've just continued to stay true to myself so that I'm not I don't allow things that I wouldn't otherwise if they weren't. Um, oh, it's so hard to talk about. Fun You're doing awesome. <laughs> You're doing awesome. Um, and then I try to think, like, how would Justin feel about XYZ decisions? So if, let's say, they made Justin Mario Lopez in a movie, I know that he would not probably um, be cohesive with that <laughs> decision. And so, so those are things that I'm like, Ooh, you know what? And so I advocate, I try to advocate for him not being here and try to advocate for my kids. I certainly don't want some outrageous concept out there that my kids would be ashamed of or that they wouldn't understand. So I'm kind of guarding their memory of Justin in the future while they're kids now. And so I do safeguard quite a bit, but luckily I haven't really had to be in that situation. No one has, has yet to put me in a situation where I feel like, Ooh, I need to to really put the smack down on this. So that's, I'm incredibly fortunate in that way. And, but yeah, ultimately it's been okay. So I really haven't had to do a whole lot about the feelings of it being public. I will say I don't, <laughs> I actually don't really read them beyond the parts that, beyond the parts that pertain specifically to our family, because I've already lived the, I don't know, the living version of it. Mm-hmm. I don't have too much personal interest in revisiting that in a a recreational way Mm -hmm. so i tend to not read it i I don't like unwind with a copy of red platoon Um, not that i don't think it's an incredible book but it's just it's not something that yeah it's not something i can do with my time and walk away from it feeling you know good about my day so it has to be a very 
special circumstance that I can sit down and actually visit that. So, and I accept that and I'm, and I'm open about that and I'm okay with talking to the people that have written the books or doing the interview or whatever, um, to just say like, yeah, you know what? I can't, I just can't do that. There's a lot of stuff I could do, a lot of stuff I could talk about, but I have limitations. And so I, I make that open as well. Um, I think the biggest message that I, I have learned from all of this is the power that shared sacred, sacred spaces have. Mm -hmm. So whether it's in your marriage where you have these significant moments that bind you together as a couple, or um, I think what you're saying as far as, you know, my relationship with you, I think was really solidified on that day because it was such a significant day for both of us at the same time that we've been very, we've kind of been very protective of that sacred space that we share. And so whether it was talking to you about including you in the book or even doing this interview, my relationship with you is far more important than whether or not we do the interview. And, and so I think, you know, when I look back at all of the experiences with 361 and the relationships that we had, um, with the Keating guys or with, um, some of the other spouses, there's always been, I think, a very mutual feeling of wanting to respect each other and protect each other because those sacred spaces that we shared together, solidified Mm -hmm. those relationships so much that we want to protect each other. Um, And so I think my takeaway from that is really the power of when you experience these moments together, how bonding and, and the connection that happens because of it. And my goal is how do we bring that into marriage today? Yeah. And how do we have some significant positive moments together with our spouse that binds us in a way that counterbalances some of the negative experiences that we have separately. Yeah. So um, I would like to ask you and kind of get into your, you're married now and you're actually married to another soldier. And I think Mm -hmm. that's going to surprise a lot of people because (laughs) after going through what you went through, I think the first question would be, why would you put yourself through that? You know, not that you put yourself through it all over again, but why would you want to marry a soldier again? And, and so um, I don't know if you want to share a little bit about, yeah. you know, how long you've been married and yeah. just a little bit about your life now. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I really didn't want to be married back in the army again, either. It's, it's one of those can't choose who you love things. Um, <laughs> it was one of those, uh, one of those things as it was occurring, I was like, man, this is going to be awful <laughs> because I knew very well that I was, um, jumping right back on that lifestyle that, I really had tried to distance myself from after Justin died. Um, like I had, I was getting out of the army. Um, I was moving back home to where I was from, where I was born and raised so that I could really kind of just surrender back to safety in the, in that time. And, um, in that period of time, after some time passed, um, I had starting talking to, started talking to my now husband again. Um, uh, when I don't even have Facebook anymore, but I, at the time I reached out to him on Facebook and was like, Hey, blah, blah, blah. And, and I hadn't talked to him forever. And, and so anyway, um, he, it turns out was actually then deployed to Afghanistan when we started talking again, which was horrible. Um, but he was very understanding of all of my crazy anxieties, um, throughout that deployment and then um, we started kind of talking romantically Um, it helped again a lot that we had known each other previous um, as friends and um, so then he ended up coming and visiting uh, for his R&R and or his his mid-tour leave he came up and visited and um, it went really well and at one point he said you know do you think you'll ever get married again and I was like oh no absolutely not there's no way and he was like what if it was just the right guy I was like oh I don't I don't think there's that guy. And he was like, well, what if, what if you knew him before? What if you guys were friends? What if he like respected you for you and knew you before all of this? And and I'm like, oh, well, there's no one like that. Like there's, there is no, there's yeah. Okay. Sure. If there was that guy, you know, then I would consider getting married again. And then I, I want to say he proposed like a month later. Um, and so, um, but the way that that happened naturally was the only way it could have because again, even when it was right in front of my face, I was still like, oh, absolutely not. And I wouldn't have fathomed that a relationship of substance after everything. So, so I would, I would want to remind others listening that you may feel a certain way at some point and that's perfectly okay. And, and to be present in that feeling, 
to always be open to the fact that you just don't know how you're going to feel about something in the future. Um, and that even if the feeling is negative, it's not the end all be all. It may be that you do end up in another situation going, wow, I can't believe I felt like this couldn't happen, you know? So I married back into the army and then we moved, um, as in true army fashion, you know, we got moved around the country. And so that's fast forward to, um, to now we've been married for four years and I do have some tips, I guess, for how I feel like we've gotten through some things. As you know, um, him and I have not been immune from very real life problems in a marriage. So it wasn't like, Oh, I already went through one horrible experience. I guess I'm safe for the rest of my life. Um, uh, one thing is I, I had to not romanticize my previous marriage. Um, I couldn't romanticize Justin and I, I mean, we, we had a lot of problems and he had a lot of problems and I had a lot of problems separately. And we both had a lot of problems and it was a very, very real military marriage that it, yeah. So I had to remember when I would think like, Oh, well, Justin wouldn't do it like that. Or Justin wouldn't have never let that happen or whatever. I, I had to remind myself that first of all, they were two very different people for a lot of good reasons. And that, there are problems in every marriage um, to be navigated through that just, it's just, it's just a fact of life. You're not going to be the one marriage that's never going to have an argument and that survives gracefully through that. And so I did learn that the only way to be married was to stay married. So in some of our worst times, um, it was just to agree that we were going to stay married and if that's all that we could do in those moments, and that's that was the only commitment we were going to keep, even if we thought we hated each other at the time, just that we were going to stay married through it. So, so there's that. Is there anything that Jeremy does that has helped you as you've looked back on the pain of losing Justin? Is there anything that he's done really well that's helped you? He's maintained a level of invo- involvement that's been kind of a delicate balance, and he's been very sure of himself as who he is in my life, so that he's not uncomfortable or jealous or insecure. Um, Justin is in for an award upgrade right now. And my current husband has to hear pretty consistently about, about that situation. So he's here. My husband is in the army hearing about my late spouse and his decorated actions in battle in situations that my husband made. hope to God never be in. Um, and that's, if he were trying to chase a shadow of someone, it would, it wouldn't work. So I'm glad that he is his own man and knows who he is to himself and me and then supports me accordingly. So he's not trying to be anything that he's not. And he's very supportive and welcoming of conversation. So it's not like, Oh, it's the elephant in the room or anything like that. I mean, he's, he's, we're able to talk about it. It's very open. What is it like for you to be a military spouse, again, assigned to a new installation and in an involved maybe, or are you involved in FRG or being kind of playing the normal military spouse role? Um, are you involved where you are? And what is it like for you to be a military spouse? I was involved more when we first got there. Um, I kind of just helped an FRG get on their feet and then stepped away because I do work full time. And not that working full time by any means should disqualify someone from being able to volunteer and be involved. It just, in my situation, it was, I had enough to give to get something started for others to get involved. So I kind of used my motivation in that way. Um, But my time was very hard to come by after that. And so I was involved more at the beginning. Now I'm much less involved. And frankly, the it's a different command and the command's not as involved as well. And that does make a huge difference. If you feel the support for a family program or don't, it does make a difference how many people will get involved and volunteer. Anyway, so I was very much involved. And since I do wear multiple hats, so I'm, you know, I'm a veteran and I um, am a military spouse and then a gold star. I have to remember my audience in those moments where I'm not there as having gone through tragedy and loss FRG leader, I'm just there as a military spouse wearing that hat, being Jeremy's wife. Um, I love that. So, so I, I just, I have to remind myself, not 
not not too often only in really trying situations maybe like maybe someone will make a remark about well i don't know why there's you know survivor parking at the commissary and i have Mm -hmm. to just remember that rightfully so they have no idea what that's like to be through and they i'm glad that they don't i'm glad that the majority of the huge majority of military spouses don't know that feeling and because if they did that would be a horrible world to live in if everybody knew what that felt like. So I'm, I'm glad, frankly, when I hear stuff like that, I'm like, oh, that's wonderful. I'm so glad that they don't even understand what that could mean. They never should. And I hope they never do. So, yeah. So I just remind myself of who I am when I'm there and be that person. Has there been situations where you have opened up and shared with people that you are a gold star? And has that helped at all? I have, and it did help. I did a talk at one point about DD-93s, about the importance of accuracy and the importance that the command and that the command team helps scrub soldiers of paperwork with them and maybe emphasize the importance of, hey, are you sure that you want 100% of this to go to, you know, your great aunt that you've only met and you're not going to leave that to your wife? <laughs> you know, these these moments where you, I've encouraged the the unit to just make sure just even in a conversation with their soldiers that the soldier is making an educated informed decision on on the on the paperwork because it means a lot of heartache either caused or saved if it's the way it's supposed to be so anyway so i did talk about that um i talked to the families and the soldiers about the importance of that um and that was very well received and they did they the command went through and fixed a couple of things found out that a couple of soldiers, really, that's the way they wanted things, you know, and it was fine. They respected that. And then I talked at a, a casualty assistance officer training uh, on Fort Stewart. So they invited me to come and kind of tell my story, make the PowerPoints more real. Um, so I did. I went and talked to them about that. And I think that was a very good class. And I think that that probably helped a lot of future CAOs as they go out and hopefully never have to make a single uh, obligation. But if they do, I feel like they were better prepared for it to have a gold star talk at it. So when I listen to you talk, and I've I've been talking to you off and on since 2009, I just I listen to you and I hear how strong of a woman you are, how I, I don't want to use the word resilient, like you just really, <laughs> you really, um, in some ways know who you are, know what you feel, you know, maybe not 100% of the time, I think that's no, no person can do that 100% <laughs> no. of the time. But um when you look back on all of this, how are you a different person? How are you a better person? Um, what's changed in you because of everything you've been through? Well, I've learned a lot, um, of course, whether I liked it or not. I, le- I learned a lot um, about priorities to me. You know, it's, a, it's personal priorities and kind of sort of triaged my, my own life over time. First of all, financial incentives. You can't take it with you. You know, for, so there was that, stuff like that. Um, where, or just knowing that that goodbye or that hug, that that's an important, that everyone is important. Every conversation, every, not, not to put profound pressure on it, but just knowing that life is certainly not forever. And I know it sounds cliche, but that life really can be a lot shorter than you anticipate. And so the people that you care about, just to be mindful of that, as much as you can. And so I, I learned a lot of lessons, like, and those are just a couple of examples, but I learned a lot of lessons and I learned a lot about marriage because Justin and I had the problems that we had and never got to resolve. I try to live a life that is worth dying for and live a marriage that was worth being blessed with because mm-hmm. it's, it, uh, yeah, because it's a lot of sacrifice involved. So yeah, so I try to remind myself of that when I get of course. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's changed me for sure. <laughs> I've actually learned to protect my spouse better this time around. And I hate to, again, like, it's not like marriage A, marriage B, but it, I've learned to protect my husband emotionally better than I did with Justin. And so can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. So protect from stress, from distractions, from feelings of inadequacy. I mean, they've, they've made a commitment to the military and make that easier for them. I mean, it's, it's not a surprise to any military spouse or military family member that they have a commitment to the military. And it is not, I don't, I don't feel like it's fair on late nights and distracted weekends 
for us to lean entirely on them for our own health and wellness because no person can juggle that many things and do them all right. So something would have to give and, you know, here they are trying to take care of themselves, their country, their children, and you all at the same time. And that can really pit their love for you against the other elements of their life if they're put in that position. So I think that, that yeah, protecting your spouse. Can you give from, some practical yeah. ways that you do that? Like without sharing yeah. too much information about your marriage, but yeah. what, what, what does that look like for the spouse out there that says, yeah, I want, I want to protect my spouse emotionally yeah. and I, I want to serve them in that way. So what, what are some okay. things that you do? Well, like, let's say my husband was in the field and I go to register the car and I have a really hard time because I don't have this power of attorney, but it's nothing that needs to happen today, or even if it does, um, there are other ways to do that, other resources for that, that rather than leaving, you know, five messages about how upset I am and, oh my gosh, end of the world kind of stuff, to think, like, how can I take care of this with the resources that I have? And instead of putting it on my spouse, who can really do nothing about it, barring leaving the field and coming home for something that is really not an emergency, to not unload that on them and just give them sometimes the, yeah, everything's fine and not, not lie, but just, again, just prioritize. I mean, um, is it really that tragic to, to not have the oranges you like at the grocery store and to just, yeah, just (laughs) when talking about it with your spouse, who can do nothing about it at that moment to not make them feel like they're failing you by not being home. That's one example of just trying to protect them from feeling that way when they're trying to do a job and they've committed to that job. Do you feel that you have learned to be stronger and not care about people's feelings? Like, does that stuck around since that day in October or yeah, in 2009? Do you, did you carry some of that with you? I did. I, I think it's, it's a lot more fine tuned now. Um, I have a lot more, um, I mean, there's, there's a time and place for it kind of thing. Um, I can, I can kind of do the smile and nod and, oh, bless your heart kind of stuff. <laughs> um, but um, but on the same token, um, yeah, I mean, I, I still very much try to stay true to myself and my own needs and feelings. But again, with fine tuning where I'm, I'm not as quick to make some remark that's going to hurt someone's feelings. But if, if I do, I at least apologize for it afterward. <laughs> One of the things I, I think a lot about when I think about you is some of the balance that you've brought to your life. I think about how the fact that if I want to reach out to you, I actually have to call you. I don't find you on Facebook. Um, I <laughs> yeah. love the fact that you said that you decide very carefully how you choose your time and yeah. um, the things that you read and that you f- fill your mind with, that you, you carefully choose what that's going to do for you and to you. I, you also have property out in Alaska. I think you're there right now. I am. Um, where you have, you know, all of us may not be able to have property in Alaska, but I think the point that I'm trying to make is yes. that you have decided what things are important to you and you know how to take time and space for yourself, for your family, for yeah. your marriage. And I love the fact that you have this place that you can get away that's safe, that's quiet, yeah. um, a place where you can be in nature and, and just be present And when I think of you, I think of that. That's who I think of, uh, you know, when I think of Amanda Marr, I think present, I think that you are really living this life well. And that doesn't mean that you're living this life perfect, but it means that you are trying to keep your priorities in line because, you know, that's one of the changes that happened in Matt when he came home is that when you experience grief and you experience Mm -hmm. the loss of people that are important to you, Mm -hmm. it really makes you live differently. Uh-huh. And that was really hard for me as a spouse for him to come home and live differently. And yet I'm still troubled by the yeah. debate on Facebook. <laughs> and um, yeah. and so it's been a challenge in our marriage for me to live up to the standard of living that Matt now has, having yeah. gone through realizing that life is, is short and that it yeah. is something worth doing well. Um, and so I guess to wrap up our time, is there anything else that you would say about how your life is different now and what's worth really your energy emotionally, physically, um, anything else that you would say to anybody out there since you have the chance? Just that, that it really does get better. So that's, 
from the grief standpoint, from you know the gold star standpoint, that it, yeah, it really it really does get better, and you can be happy, and and that uh, and then from the caretaker of of grief standpoint, that you know if you think about it too, the same person that without grief might not have been your favorite person to be around, um, or someone that might have been challenging, having not have gone through anything that doesn't mean they're going to be a, a precious angel after going through grief either. Um, so to remember that these are just people that whether having gone through loss or tragedy or not, it's that they're not a big scary monster or they're not an angel. They're not a, a, a prophet. They're just, it's just a person that's gone through a lot. Yeah. That it just, that it does get better. And, and thank you for saying that about, um, the, the way you think of Amanda Mar, because that's a, I feel like that's an incredible compliment to think of a, a woman through um, struggles that then has uh, a property in Alaska that I'm present at. We spent five days building an outhouse the last week, and that's been like our meditation practice is finding finding a place to poop in the woods. <laughs> so, so, but it's but to us that's to us that is like that that is things that are important is yeah you know what i want a comfortable place to be able to read the newspaper and go to the bathroom that's so that's a lot different than a facebook argument or oh no they built a roundabout in my town and i hate it you know it's just we just think of things differently and i think that that's just where i found my place to be well amanda i just want to say thank you and that i love you so much and this has been thank you. I love you. one of my favorite conversations ever oh my gosh and thanks. what a an incredible challenge i think that you're giving all of us perspective that i think is incredibly important and and that we need to surround ourselves more with people who've gone through difficult things that we don't need to run from difficulty it actually makes us better people if yeah. we allow it and so I just, I love you so much. Thank you for being vulnerable and having the courage to talk about it. I know that that's, that causes anxiety pretty easily. And so um, I just really thank you for your time. Yeah. Thank you, Corey. Would you like to send in a shout out and have it included on the Life Giver podcast? Anyone, civilian or military, can thank a military spouse who has made a difference in your life or say thank you to a service member for working hard on your marriage. Record your shout out by using your voice memo app available on your device and email it to Corey at CoreyWeathers.com or call in and leave a voicemail shout out to 706-431-7222 and we will do our best to include it in future podcasts.